So this morning we are thinking about faithfulness, about God's faithfulness and about our faithfulness and what that looks like for you and me today, for our faith, for our lives and for our world. Now faithfulness is a huge challenge in our lives but as we see afresh God's faithfulness it is my belief that we will draw on it in the midst of problem areas in our lives and it will cause us to allow God's Spirit to develop the fruit of faithfulness more fully in us as we respond to the needs of One Sunday morning, a mother went into her son's bedroom and she said, Son, wake up, it's time to go to church. Well, he kind of groaned and rolled over and said, Not today, Mum, I'm not going to church. She said, What do you mean you're not going? Why not? He said, Mum, I'll give you two good reasons. Number one, I don't like those people. And number two, they don't like me. Mum said, son, that's no excuse. I'll give you two better reasons why you should go. Number one, you're 59 years old. And number two, you're the minister. Now that wasn't about me. Obviously I'm not 59 yet. In Galatians 5 verse 22, faithfulness means to be trustworthy and reliable. God is faithful and his desire is to see that faithfulness manifest in the lives of his children. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of letting a friend down or having a friend let you down. In small or big ways it hurts, doesn't it? It often feels like a betrayal even when it seems like just a small thing. I often wonder how God feels when we let him down and I guess I'm thankful that he doesn't react as we do. God is faithful. Even when we are not, even when we don't get out of bed, it may be just that right now you need to take a moment to let Holy Spirit work in you so that you can heal, be forgiven and forgive others. I wonder what we're we learning in this series. Are we experiencing answered prayer? Are we relating to others differently? Is God growing his fruit in us? The problem for us today is and maybe not so much in lockdown, but society and culture at large is self-centered. It's all about me. Well, it's all about you. Relationships are discarded. Friends are dropped when they outlive their usefulness. Promises are too often broken. How reliable are you? Faithfulness is only about one person. It's about you and me. It's, it's about us as individuals. We have to look at ourselves to invite God in to develop in us faithfulness and from there we can change the world i firmly believe that you and i we can be world changers how have you experienced god's faithfulness in this past week or this past six months how does it feel when people are unfaithful to you it's it's deeply hurtful isn't it well king jehoshaphat the king of judah learned a lot about faithfulness the hard way he began his reign by following God faithfully, by getting rid of the idol worship that was a constant plague for Judah. But then he entered into an alliance with Ahab, the king of Israel at that divided kingdom time, which was against God's will. And the results were disastrous. God was not happy. So it's no wonder that Jehoshaphat was anxious when invading armies approached his kingdom. In his desperation, he cried out to God, and how God answered is seen in this passage. We're about to read an amazing illustration of God's faithfulness. Let's read from Second Chronicles chapter 20, 
verses 1 to 30. It's a big one, so buckle in. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Meonites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazion Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming and drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah and their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen. King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the vast army. For the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness, 
as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing in praise, the Lord sent ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. And the Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they had finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing, and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Berakah, where they praised the Lord. And this is why it is called the Valley of Berakah to this day. It means the Valley of Worship. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets. The fear of the Lord came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. Charles Swindle tells a funny story about a nine-year-old boy named Danny. He came bursting out of Sunday school like a wild stallion. His eyes were darting in every direction as he tried to locate his mum or his dad. Finally, after a quick search, he found his dad and he grabbed him by the leg and he said, Man, that story of Moses and those people crossing the Red Sea was amazing. His father looked down at him and smiled and said, Well, tell me about it then, Danny. Well, Danny said, the Israelites got out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his army chased after them. So the Jews ran as fast as they could until they got to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was getting closer and closer. So Moses got on his walkie-talkie and he told the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Egyptians. Now while all that was happening, the Israel Navy built a pontoon bridge so the people could cross over. And they made it. <laughs> By this point, Dad was shocked. Is that really what they taught you at Sunday school? And then I said, well, no, not exactly, he admitted. But if I told you the way they told it to us, Dad, you would never believe it. With childlike innocence, this little person put his finger on the pulse of our sophisticated adult world where cool scepticism reigns supreme. It's more popular to operate in the black and white world of facts and, of course, to leave no space for the miraculous. God is at work in the past, in the present, in the first part of this passage, you can picture the crowds of men, women and children gathering from all over the kingdom. King Jehoshaphat would have been in awe, and also the people were fasting. The king and the people were in a posture, ready to receive from God, and they call out to him. Then the, the Jehaziel, the prophet, speaks out in the assembly. What hopes and fears would be experienced in the crowd as he speaks? Are the people thinking, well, who is this guy? I've not seen him before. 
But the king bows to the ground after hearing the word of the Lord, and the people bow. And then the Levites of the temple begin to praise God loudly in, in the face of such potential trauma. What do the people do? They worship and they praise. If you were one of the Israelites, what would be your reaction? It all begins with prayer. Jehoshaphat, in verses 6 to 12, calls upon God's faithfulness to answer his prayer. Jehoshaphat is total in his commitment to God acknowledging that only God could save this nation. He appeals to God's power, his faithfulness in the past. He even mentions God's covenant with Abraham, his friend. And he speaks of God's justice. And he asks these questions. Are you not? Did you not? Will you not? These questions form a wonderful pattern for us as we too shape our prayers on the character of God. God's been faithful in the past, faithful today, and faithful for the future. Now consider God's response to the king's prayer through the words of the prophet, this man, Jehaziel. You can, you can see the people almost whispering, is this from God? Who is that guy? What kind of sandals is, are those that he's wearing? Yet they trusted that it was of God. They would have to as their kingdom and their very lives are at risk. And what did they do? They submitted. They worshipped the Lord. What a model for us to follow in the midst of crisis. Because that is not something we do, is it? Praising God before the answer comes. We tend to hold back until we see God coming through, even though he never has let us down. And then the people, as they stepped out onto that cliff, looking down on the desert, they saw a vast army and they were all dead. And God's people were blessed with peace and prosperity as they rejoiced in God's faithfulness. But we also realise that no matter the outcome, they'd already submitted and worshipped and rejoiced. Folks, here's the solution. Submission, worship and prayer key ways in which we overcome our self-centered nature and our self-centered culture. We can learn so much from Jehoshaphat and his people. We can see an awareness that God has brought them through in the past and he will do it again in the future. And they listened. When God spoke through his chosen person, they bent the knee and they worshipped him. They submitted, they prayed and they worshipped. They sang and shouted a song of joy so how does this apply to us? How can the faithfulness of God create in us a way to be faithful not only to God, but to ourselves and to each other? God is good and can be trusted. In him, we are good. Can we be trusted? Too often we think that giving our lives to God is like handing over a thousand pound note and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. But the truth of the matter is that God sends us to the bank and tells us to cash in that £1,000 note and we get 50p's. And then we go through life giving away 50p here, 50p there, and so on. So instead of watching the football, we spend some time visiting a lonely person in a nursing home who has no family. Instead of going for a coffee and reading the paper, we get dressed and we go to lead Sunday, Sunday club. Instead of playing games on the computer, we listen to a friend tell us about her problems. 
even though we're tired and we have our own problems to deal with, enough of our own problems to deal with. These are the moments in which the grace of God can work through us to help another being, to feed the hunger of the heart and the spirit. Now they may not be the spectacular miracles that we see in this passage, but these are the things we can do to bring meaning and significance to our life and to others. And I think this is what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is turning up, showing up and sticking in, even when every bit of you wants to quit, to keep going, and as you get through it, you grow and you are stronger for the next time. Be reliable. Be a person of trust. I'm a boy's brigader through and through. And the motto is found sure and steadfast in Hebrews 6 verse 19. We have an anchor for our soul. Meditate on this truth. God is good and his love endures forever. He is faithful. Thank God for his faithfulness to you in the past. Praise him for his present involvement and ask him to help you grow in faithfulness to him and others for the future. So if you get the chance, read the previous chapters of Second Chronicles and see where Jehoshaphat was faithful and where he broke trust in the little everyday things. Now with all this biblical passage, I find such similarities with a story from World War II that that just chimes with Jehoshaphat's experience. If you don't know the story, on the 10th of May 1940, Hitler unleashed a military onslaught on France and Belgium. Within days, the British army were outmaneuvered and unprepared. Along with soldiers of other allied nations, they found themselves with their backs to the sea and they were hemmed in by the enemies. The German high command was able to boast with confidence that its troops were proceeding to annihilate the British army. That the total destruction of an entire army was imminent was a view that was shared by many in the military and political leadership of Britain. Prime Minister Winston Churchill found himself preparing to announce to the public an unprecedented military catastrophe involving the capture or death of a third of a million soldiers. But it didn't happen. On the 23rd of May, King George VI requested the following Sunday should be observed as a national day of prayer. So late on Saturday evening, the military decision was taken to evacuate as many as possible of the Allied forces. On the Sunday, the nation devoted itself to prayer in an unprecedented way. Eyewitnesses and photographs confirm overflowing congregations in places of worship across the land. There was long queues formed outside cathedrals the same day, an urgent request went out for boats of all sizes and shapes to cross the English Channel to rescue the besieged army, a call that ultimately answered by over 800 vessels. Yet even before the praying began, in my experience, prayer often works like that, curious events were happening. In a decision that infuriated his generals and still baffles historians, order, Hitler ordered his army to halt. Had they continued to fight, the destruction of the Allied forces would have been inevitable and the war would have taken a very different, darker and more terrible path. Yet, for three days, the German tanks and soldiers stood idle while the evacuation unfolded. Not only that, but bad weather on the Tuesday grounded the Luftwaffe, allowing Allied soldiers to march unhindered to the beaches. 
In contrast, on Wednesday, the sea was extraordinarily calm, making the perilous evacuation less hazardous. By the time the German army was finally ordered to renew its attack, over 338,000 troops had been snatched from the beaches, including 140,000 French, Belgian, Dutch and Polish soldiers. Many of them were to return four years later to liberate Europe. Now, of course, you could argue it was all a coincidence, but I think not. It certainly wasn't considered so at the time. Sunday the 9th of June was declared a national day of thanksgiving and was encouraged by Churchill himself, and the phrase, the miracle of Dunkirk, began to circulate. You could say the same about King Jehoshaphat. We live in a world where people are not simply cautious about miracles, but they prefer to rule them out entirely. But on an entirely practical level, looking at the challenges facing the British nation today, the idea of praying to God for deliverance seems to be something that we should be encouraging. Indeed, I think Dunkirk stands an extraordinary encouragement to pray in faith, to be faithful as God is faithful. However great our problems, God is greater than them. That Dunkirk encouragement to pray in times of need applies to every level of life and to every challenge, from what may be a petty domestic crisis to national disaster. And although our nation may not, face, may not be facing imminent military catastrophe on the scale it did in 1940, you don't have to look hard to see overwhelming and major problems for us today. Dunkirk may have been a military epic that should be remembered but perhaps more importantly, it's an encouragement to pray, as King Jehoshaphat prayed. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, we read these words, even though we are faithless, he remains faithful. What are the little things in your life where you may be tempted to take things for granted and find yourself slipping? Is this the place where you need God to do a work on you today. Pray about these things, asking God to give you wisdom and practical guidance as you move through events in the coming weeks and months. Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I want you to think of ways in which God has come through for you in the most difficult situations in the past. How will you thank him for these specifically? When the week is up, look back and try to see what the results are in your life. How will you journal of all the good things that God has done this week? And from this, take time to praise and give thanks. If there haven't been any times where you think God has come through for you, be honest and tell God about it. I believe we will all see God's faithfulness present in our lives when we look. And as we experience it, Holy Spirit will make faithfulness contagious in us as it grows in us. Be faithful people. Let God's faithfulness embed itself in your life and give thanks. Submit and worship. Sing out a shout of praise today for he is faithful and as his faithfulness fills us, we will be people and that's what the world needs. The world needs we as Christians to rise up and to be faithful.
in all situations. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your faithfulness to us always, in the past, in the present, and for the future. Lord, grow faithfulness in us. Holy Spirit, anoint us so that we continue to grow in faithfulness each and every day and bless others. Lord, may we be a blessed machine to Dalkeith and across the world. Jesus, in your name we pray.